this is from Numbers 4 through 6, 10 through 20, and 31 through 34. We have, sorry, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember when, remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have you not found favor in your have I not found favor in your sight? And you lay the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not, be see, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather up for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, You will give us meat to eat. Will you, who will give us meat to eat? For it, is better, for it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes lo lo loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and you have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp. About two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten homers, and then they, and they spread them out themselves around the camp. While the meat was yet beneath their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place is called Kithbreth Havatah, because they were buried, the people who, were, who had been craving so when I first read this passage, um, kind of getting ready for reading it and what it, I thought the Lord was like really a savage, right? Like all they want to do is eat meat. Um, and then it just hit me that the reason I think that is because um, I'm them. Um, I'm never satisfied. I'm never grateful. Like, Lord, you, you took us out of Egypt. Thanks. But now we want food. You gave us manna. Thanks. But now we want meat. Um, but it's the same thing in my life now. Like, um, with work or um, thank you for my healthy kids but now make them great thank you for work but now make it better um, 
and it's just from a lack of a heart of gratitude uh, is kind of what struck me about this passage is the reason I thought the Lord was kind of being savage was um, I'm them and I'm, I'm not content. I'm not satisfied. And um, so before I lead us in prayer, um, I want us to take like 30 or 45 seconds and just sit here and, and pray for either the Lord, pray a prayer of gratitude for what the Lord has given you or pray for a heart of gratitude that you may see those things that he's given you. Um, and then I will close this with prayer after that. So uh, we're going to bow our heads just for a minute. I want you to take some time and pray for a heart of gratitude or, or thank the Lord for the things um, that you are grateful for. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your church. Uh, thank you for all of those who have um, come before us um, in our Presbyterian and our denomination and um, going way back. We just thank you for all those. Um, in the Psalms, you give us example after example of ways in which we can be grateful and ways in which we can be content in you. Um, and I pray that you will give us those things now. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear, and I pray that um, as we listen today that you will give us a heart of gratitude for everything that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, J.D. Um, that was quite the passage. My favorite was the last two um, Hebrew words, kitrath hafrafa, however you say it. Good morning, my name is Gordon Fleming. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be worshiping with y'all. I'm really thankful for, I'm just amazed still that it wasn't that long ago that we were sending out church-wide emails asking people to pray that God would raise up worship leaders in our church because we just didn't have any. And now we've got three different sites with a lot of giftedness at all three sites. And so I'm really thankful for that and just the work that y'all put into it. And so thank you for that, Mike, and the team. Uh, but we are, as J.D. read, we are looking at the Exodus. We are looking at the story of Israel and um, for the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Exodus studying the life of Moses, and we've been looking into the past to take a look at what salvation looked like for Israel. But we've also been seeking to apply it to our lives, and we've seen that in looking at the story of their salvation, that in much the same way, we're on the same journey that they were on. As many of you know, Pastor Tim Keller, who had been battling pancreatic cancer, is now with Jesus in glory. And on Monday, when hospice was called in, I have a book that was written about him. I, I got the book. Colin Hansen wrote it. It's called Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. I just started flipping through it just to kind of read through it. And a section grabbed my attention when I was looking at it on Monday. And it's a point where Hansen was talking about the early spiritual influences on Keller's life as a new Christian. And he talked about Old Testament scholar Alex Motier. And Keller said that just after college, he was a new Christian, and he really struggled to understand the Old Testament and to know if there was really any present-day value to the Old Testament. 
not far from where he lived, a pastor was holding a Q&A session with Alex Motier, this new Old Testament scholar, and they were discussing this very thing, and so Keller went. And as he got there, the question was asked to Dr. Motier, hey, what's the connection? Is there any connection that we have to the Old Testament at all? How is it even relevant to us? And then Keller recalled this as his answer. He asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with a promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Then Dr. Motier concluded, now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. Keller said when he heard that, that he was thunderstruck. He said that in his early Christian journey, he thought that the Old Testament, people were saved by obeying a bunch of laws. But today we are freely forgiven and accepted by faith. But then he said Motier's statement showed him that not only were the Israelites all saved by grace and that God's salvation had been through costly atonement and grace all along, but also the pursuit of holiness, pilgrimage, obedience, and deep community should characterize Christians today as well along our journey. Well, Dr. Keller has finished his journey and is now with his king in his true country and everlasting home. But for those of us that are here on this earth, we are on the same journey. And week after week, we've seen that the struggles that Israel faced are 100% the same struggles that we face today. Anger, rebellion, disobedience, idol worship. We've seen that we haven't really changed much over all, all these years. But the good news is, God hasn't either. God still saves sinners and dwells with them in deep community. But it begs the question... How does a holy God dwell with sinful people? Well, in Exodus, we see that he does so through the leadership and mediation of Moses. We saw last week that God threatened to live Israel because of their sin and rebellion, and Moses intervenes before God, and God tells him, I will go with y'all, Moses, because you, singular Moses, have found favor in my eyes. And what this shows us is that salvation for Israel came through a mediator. And the same is true for us. Our salvation comes through Jesus Christ, who God himself said at Jesus' baptism, whom I am well pleased. And because of God's pleasure, and because it rests on his son, through Jesus' far better mediating than Moses, God's favor rests on, and his presence dwells with us. As I mentioned, we've been in Exodus, but you may have noticed that J.D. read from Numbers, and the reason that we're studying Numbers is it's sort of the rest of the story that Exodus doesn't tell. Numbers chronicles Israel's 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. It is mind-numbingly detailed. It is completely overwhelming, but it's a picture that God gives his people of how to live in their newfound freedom, forming their culture. The passage that J.D. read took place about a year after God's people had been delivered out of slavery. And if it sounds familiar, it should, because it's a reoccurring theme. Just a few weeks ago in Exodus 16, we read this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then just one chapter later, we read this. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Grumbling, complaining, blaming, character assassination. That is their story completely, but again, it is our story as well. Eugene Peterson points out this dynamic as he introduces the book of Numbers in his book, The Message. And he says this, It follows that counting and quarreling take up considerable space in the book of Numbers because they also continue to be unavoidable unavoidable aspects of our becoming the people of God. This book is essential in training our imaginations to take in some of these less-than-romantic details by which we are formed into the people of God. Now, that's amazing if you think about it. That God takes these less than romantic details to form us into the people of God. So what that means is that God uses the grumbling, the complaining, the discontent of Israel, and he uses it to turn them into the people of God. And the same is true for us. He takes our grumbling, our complaining, and our discontentment to form us into the people of God. And that is baffling. But it echoes what Joseph told his brothers right after they sold him into slavery in Genesis when he said, What you intended for evil, God used for good to save many lives. So this morning we are going to consider the fun subject of discontentment. And in doing so we're going to see three things. We're going to see first the cause of discontentment. We're going to see the look of discontentment. And then last we're going to see the remedy to discontentment. So let's look at our first point, the cause of discontentment. Let's read again the first few verses of our passage. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses, who wrote Numbers, tells us that there is a group among the people that have a strong craving, and he calls them the rabble. And commentators believe that this is a group of people that came out of Egypt with Israel, but are not necessarily uh, Israeli, that they may be from other nationalities or maybe even converted Egyptians. And the point is is that they're not the core of the 600,000 people that were freed from slavery, but they're people on the fringe. They're almost outsiders, and they start stirring up trouble. Oh, that we had meat. Remember the free fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Our strength is is dried up. We have nothing but this manna to eat. And the other people hear it, and they agree. And they're despondent. They're weeping in their tent, clearly discontent, as they have really been the entire year that they have been in the wilderness. But why? Why the dissatisfaction? Why the discontentment? Well, we can see the roots of their discontent and the roots of our discontent on a few different levels. The first thing we see specifically in the passage is who they are listening to. They're listening to this rabble group, this group of outsiders that are influencing the attitudes of people. And so what this shows us 
is that discontent is incredibly contagious. Notice it starts with this small group, the rabble. It moves to the entire nation of Israel, and then it eventually gets to Moses himself. In a sense, discontent is like a field of dandelions, right? It only takes one small seed, but when it's blown by the wind, it can spread quickly and almost overnight. And so practically what that means for us is that we need to be really careful at who we are listening to. Because let me ask you this, where do you go to measure your quality of life? The quality of your personal life, do you go to God's word? Do you go to the gospel that tells the story of your love, uh, God's love for you, your redemption and salvation? Passages that tell you that you are beloved, that you are chosen before the creation of the world. Or do you go to social media? Or do you go to the news? You know, I'm sort of barely on social media, but when I am, I'm flooded with discouragement. I'm discouraged by what I see taking place in our world, but also it discourages me personally. Because I look at all these people and they have better situations than me, or they have more money. They have families that get along better. They take better trips than I take. They have nicer stuff that I, ha- that I have. And so it's amazing to me, when I pay attention to my own heart, what devastating effects social media has on me. And how it sows the seeds of idolatry in my heart. Because I think if I only had that, I would be happy. If I only had more of this, then I would be content. If I had these quality of relationships, then I would be fulfilled. The voices that we listen to on a daily basis are incredibly important. And so the question is, who or what are you listening to? Because it matters way more than we think. Another reason that Israel is so discontent and why we are at times as well is because functionally, they have forgotten that they're not in the promised land yet. They are still in the wilderness. They are on their way there, but they are not there yet. They are heading to a land of milk and honey, and the wilderness is not it. They are not in their promised land, and neither are we. I heard it said one time that if you are in a relationship with Jesus, this world is the only hell that you will ever, ever experience, but we still expect it to be heaven. And so because of this, we seek and demand, like Israel, our best lives now here on earth. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. How often do we aim at heaven? How often do we think about our promised land? Instead of longing for the gift of heaven and the peace and fulfillment that we will live in once we're there, we demand that God gives it to us now. We demand it, and when we don't get it, we pitch a fit. But we have to remember, our best lives are not going to be lived in the wilderness and in the desert. Now make no mistake, in Isaiah, God promises that one day there will be streams in the desert, but we are not there yet. He does promise that all things sad will come untrue, but that isn't right now. Our world is broken by sin, and it's corrupted by its, by its effects. Now, yes, of course, granted, there are going to be periods of joy and satisfaction and peace, but we won't always have joy, satisfaction, and peace. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble, but we are still so surprised when we do. Expecting 
that this world will give us what only heaven promises us sets us up for a life of complaint and discontentment. And so Israel, listening to these voices, forgetting that they're not yet truly home yet, causes them to live in a demanding state of discontentment, and the same is true for us. But here's what we need to realize. Ultimately, the source of their discontentment boils down to one thing, unbelief, which is our sinful disposition that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where another rabble voice told Adam and Eve, you can't trust him. You can't believe him. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know better than him. And isn't that ultimately what Israel is saying? And isn't that often how we live our lives in a state of unbelief? We think we ultimately know what is best for us. And like Israel, like a toddler, when we don't get it, we pitch a fit. And so we demand things to be different, believing that we ultimately know what is best for us. And so I have to ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? What is your level of contentment? What is your level of discontentment? As you survey your own heart, is it filled with contentment and rest or the opposite? As you look at your life, your relationship with God and with others, are you too filled with discontent? Well, this morning we have to have courage. We have to have the courage to let Scripture do its work on us. We need to look at the fruit of discontentment in the lives of Israel, and we need to soberly ask if we look the same way. So, as was read, there is a lot going on in this passage. And so we're not going to cover everything, but we are going to look at three things. The first result of discontentment that we see in our passage is that it distorts their past, and it distorts our past. Remember what the rabble was saying, right? They were saying, oh, the food we had in Egypt, the free fish that we had, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. They sound like they were living in paradise in Egypt. It sounds like they had it made. Fish for free, all the vegetables that they wanted. And that may have been the case because in the Nile River Basin, I'm sure there was a lot of abundance there. But they forgot that it actually wasn't free and that it came at great cost. In 1973, world-famous American sculptor Richard Serra pointed this out, that if something is free, you're the product. Israel was the product of their free fish, and the cost of it was their freedom. They had an abundance of food because it was fuel for their slave labor. They had forgotten about the bricks without straw. They forgot about the murder of their babies the oppression of their Egyptian taskmasters. If Egypt was so great, why did they want to leave? Why did they cry out to the Lord? They have completely idealized their life of slavery. I know for me, when I get discouraged, I find myself daydreaming about simpler, easier times. I was thinking this week that during the pandemic, there was so much fighting that was going on in our world, our community, and our church that pastoring was actually a really hard gig. And so during that time, I would think back to my nine years in business, and I would think, man, I had it so easy back then. It was so much easier. People weren't criti critical of me. My work relationships weren't strained. I could go home at night and carry the burdens of pastoring with me. But here's the irony. When I was in business, I was enslaved to my job. And during those periods of enslavement, I would actually daydream about my time previous in ministry. 
And so even the time that I idealized just even recently was a time that I was longing to do something different. What's it for you? When life is hard, because it certainly is, are you content with it? Or do you long for a time in your life that things were easier when the reality is it probably actually wasn't? This is a great way to measure your own level of contentment in your heart. Another thing that we see that discontentment brings, we see in Moses' interaction with God starting in verse 11. Let's read it again. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get the meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I, fa- if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Did you notice his language there? All he did was talk about himself. It was incredibly me-focused. In the past, when Israel complained, Moses had gone to God and interceded and prayed on behalf of his people. He pled for them, but now he makes it all about himself. It's like he's a complete narcissist. Commentator Ian Dugid pointed this out. He said, In the Hebrew original, in these five verses of complaint, Moses refers to himself no fewer than 20 times. He says this is not coincidental. Whereas faith looks to God, unbelief turns in on ourselves and our inability. And I will add this, that Moses also accuses God no less than seven times in those five verses. And so essentially he says over and over and over again, I am miserable, I am miserable, I am miserable, and this is your fault. And the same is true for us, because when we're in seasons of discontentment, we become so focused on ourselves that we don't really notice or even care for the people around us, because life becomes all about us. You see, there's a dynamic in play with Moses here that is often true with us because God goes to Moses and says, hey, you have found favor in my sight. He says, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. And because of this, Moses thinks that he should never experience pain, disappointment, or suffering. As if being in a relationship with God would and should deliver a life of ease. And when he doesn't, he freaks out. I deserve better. Life should be easier. You're not actually delivering here, God. I've shared this multiple times, so I'm not going to go into detail about it, but this is something that I have struggled with my entire life. Whether it's through a job loss, whether it's through not getting success in athletics or relationally, my mind quickly turns to, but I'm a Christian. Life isn't supposed to work this way for Christians. God, I didn't follow you to experience this. Maybe you don't actually know what you're doing, which again goes back to the heart of Israel. It goes back to the Garden of Eden, and it goes back to unbelief. The other thing I want to point out about the lives of discontent is something that we've already alluded to, and we've seen this on full display all throughout the series, idolatry. Dr. Keller, I'm kind of leaning on him heavily this morning for some quotes. He describes idolatry as this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give, or to give you only what God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. This is clearly taking place in our passage, right? The rabble crowd starts out, oh, if we just had meat. Good food is all we need. And notice what Moses said in verse 15. He says, hey, if you're going to do this, just kill me. If this is the life I have to live, I would rather die. God has promised his presence to his people, but they would rather have food than him. And even Moses, as God is with him, says, if my circumstances don't change, I would rather die. Food for Israel, peace for Moses, was more important to them than God himself. So again, what's it for you? Is it money? A good career? Is it love? Respect? What is the thing that if you got it, you would finally be fulfilled? Or something in your life, if you lost it, you would rather die? Even more important to you than having a relationship with God yourself. Because as Keller went on to point out in Counterfeit Gods, whatever that thing is that you identified just now, that is what you worship. And I want you to notice something interesting that happens in this passage. God, in his grace, gave them what they wanted. Did you notice that? That God actually gave them quail, and he says, I'm going to give you so much quail that you're going to gorge yourself, and it's going to come out of your nostrils, which is disgusting, which I didn't know could even happen. But why did God give them their idol? Why would he do that? Well, Dr. Duguid points this out in his commentary. He says, one of God's most profound judgments on lost sinners is to give them everything they ask for. They are on a smooth road to destruction with nothing to turn them around. You know, for us, God oftentimes gives us our idols. And the reason he does is to show us their futility. They wanted meat thinking ultimately would bring them happiness, but the end result was nausea and loathing. And he does the same thing with us. Think about it this way. How can we at all learn the futility of our idols? We have to see firsthand for ourselves that they don't produce. When we look to anything apart from God for our worth and significance, it won't work. And because it won't work, we end up loathing the very thing that we pursued. We hate it because it didn't deliver in the way that we wanted it to. It didn't for Israel, it didn't for Moses, and it never will for us. And so God gives them to us at times so that we can see the futility of them and ultimately turn back to him, our source of life. You know, if we've seen anything this morning, like Israel, we are an unsatisfied, discontented bunch. Right? Left to ourselves, we listen to outside voices far too often. We constantly and daily live as if this world is our promised land, that this is as good as it's going to get. We have unbelieving hearts. We do not trust God. And because of this, our lives are filled with longings, or as our passage says, cravings of some idealized situation of what heaven on earth would look like, and it leads to narcissism, and it leads to idolatry. But here's the good news. We aren't left to ourselves. And this is not the end of the story because did you know that true contentment and utter satisfaction 
is available to you right now that surpasses any tragic circumstance that you experience in your life. You can have fulfillment. You can have rest. There is a remedy to our discontentment. And what is it? Well, it's not spelled out specifically, but it is all over this passage. And the remedy to discontentment is grace. Let's look again at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, and take them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people for you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. Did you notice the grace there? This undeserved mercy that God is giving to this discontented people. Because how did God respond to their complaining? Of Israel and Moses, does he say, Get out of my presence? Does he say, get away from me? Does he tell Moses, I am done with you and these people? Does he tell them just to shut up and eat their manna? No, not at all. Israel says, give us meat. And God says, you shall eat meat. Moses says, I can't do this alone. This is too much to bear. And God says, I'm sending you help. You know, there's really good news for us in this passage. There's a lot of good news. But one is that they go to God discontent and complaining. And he doesn't strike them down and he doesn't shut them up. And we can do the same. We can go to God and we can pour out our heart. We can even complain to him. We can show him our dissatisfaction and discontent. And he meets us with the same grace. He doesn't strike us down. He doesn't turn us away. But he allows us to see the futility of the things that we want most. And then he shows us what we most need. And then he gives it to us. And what is that? He gives us himself. In verse 17, God tells Moses, I will come down. He doesn't abandon Moses. He doesn't abandon Israel. Instead, he comes to them. And we can see this even more clearly because 2,000 years ago, we know that God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to our lowly estate. The greater mediator that Moses came, pointed to came down to us. And this is the very fact, this is the thing, if we completely and fully understand it, that will remove our discontentment. Because the answer to our discontent is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, let's let Dr. T Dr. Tim Keller yet again tell us. He said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared believe hope. That is good news. That is the best of news. And if we truly understand how good it is, then we will finally find the contentment that we are looking for. Yes, you can even find it this morning. Well, how is that? Well, like Moses, Jesus was surrounded by unbelieving people like you and me, but unlike Moses, he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't throw up his hands and walk away. He's never too tired or angry to intercede for us, but rather in Hebrews 7, it says that he is always interceding for us. Literally, it says he lives to intercede for us. Moses said, I would rather die than have to bear the burden of these people. 
Jesus himself bore the judgment curse that we deserved because of our discontentment. And in, in exchange, he gave us the blessing that he earned through his perfect obedience. Moses said, give me what I want. Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Because of our discontentment, Jesus went to the cross where he experienced the full force of God's wrath against sin. Through his uncomplaining and faithful obedience, he drained the cup of God's wrath and earned his Father's favor on our behalf as our mediator. It is in his sacrifice that enables a just and holy God to show undeserved mercy and grace instead of eternal death that we deserve. Jesus earned that grace on our behalf, and now in him we can receive it free of charge, just like the fish, free of charge. And the natural response to this grace is overwhelming gratitude. Because if this is true, if this is true about you, if this is true about God, how on earth can we be discontent at what no, no matter what life throws at us? If God loved us so much that he himself paid the price to redeem us, how can we complain about the daily provision of manna that he provides every day? How can we moan about the company and conditions of the people around us when Jesus has gone through the valley of death and separation from God on our behalf? The remedy to our discontentment is to keep our eyes fixed on the cross and realize just what our daily discontentment costs God. It costs him his life, which he was glad to lay down for you. And now Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God, praying for us, always interceding on our behalf. And through the power of his spirit, he will dwell with us every day. And he promises you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He says, I'm not going anywhere. Earlier this week, I watched this sermon from Pastor Chad Scruggs. He's the pastor at Covenant Church in Nashville. And um, it was his first sermon that he preached following the shooting and the loss of his daughter in the Covenant School shooting. And as he began, he made a comment, and I've thought about it all week, and it's really brief, but I did put it on the front of your bulletin. He said this, There is something worse than being sad. It's being sad and alone. And there's something worse than being discontent. It's being discontent and, and alone. And because of the gospel, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt because the greatest source of contentment that this world has ever known, that we will never have to experience that. We will never be alone. And so I have to ask you this morning, do you believe it? Do you really, really believe it? Because I will tell you, believing it, really believing it, changes everything. It changes our hearts. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we constantly say, not your will, but our be done. Uh, we seek to grow our own kingdom here on earth instead of asking you to grow your kingdom and to build your kingdom. Lord, thank you that as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was staring at the cup of God's wrath, he said, Lord, you can do anything. Father, you can do anything. Please do something different. But he said, and not my will, but your will be done. Thank you that your will was done, and that was to bring a sinful people to yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of your sinless son. Lord, I pray we would live in that reality, and it would change our discontentment into a heart of gratitude, overwhelming gratitude for you. In your name I pray. Amen.